Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're beginning in chapter 2 of Revelation, finishing the chapter, and the letter to the church of Thyatira, being exhorted to stand fast in truth. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Revelation and chapter 2. We're going to be picking up this morning looking at Jesus' comment to the church in Thyatira. And as you recall, as we began looking at this, Jesus, of course, began with some welcoming remarks to them, things that he sees, as he did with each of the churches, that he says is going well, Um, things that he knows about them. I like that. Jesus knows all about us. You know, he knows the things that we're doing right as a body of believers. He knows the things we mess up on. He knows these things, and he's gracious about it. But he does challenge us when things are not working as they should. And he's going to do that with this church. So he's given them compliments. Then last week, we began looking in the first part of this discussion. And he begins to, to critique them or really challenge them and, and, and really, in some ways, not, not condemn in the same sense we think of it, but absolutely brought a judgment word against Uh, this woman in the church by the name that he calls Jezebel, uh, who is leading them in all sorts of immorality and wrong spiritual things. She set herself up as a teacher. She set herself up as a prophetess. But the issue, as if you were here last week, you know, I've said many times people take this passage and they make it all about what this woman was doing, when in reality, the issue in this passage, it's not really about this woman so much as it is about the leadership in this church and the congregation, but primarily the leadership. Because this woman is only getting to to do what she's doing because of the leadership, because of their lack of discernment or their unwillingness to stop it. And, and they're actually giving her the platform that she has that's leading people astray. And is her name really Jezebel? Well, like we said last week, I doubt that very seriously. He's using that name as a comparative name so that as they hear this, they'll have an idea in their head of what he's talking about because he's comparing her to the Jezebel of the Old Testament and the things that she did, you know, in her, her unholy alliance and marriage to King Ahab in Israel and how through King Ahab, she was being permitted to do all sorts of wrong things, leading not only Ahab, but really through Ahab, the nation, into all sorts of sinful practices and idolatry. And so Jesus has given this comparative analysis of this to them and saying, you're tolerating her. You're tolerating her. In other words, you're putting up with her. And, and more than that, you're really giving her the, the impetus to do what she's doing. And you're wrong for doing that. And so this passage, he's going to pick up this morning, and we're going to look in verse 22, because he left off in the previous verse, uh, really getting ready now that he's critiqued her to talk about what's going to happen to her and where it's all going to lead. And here's what he says in verse 22. Let's read this, and then we're going to pray. He says in verse 22, um, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. He says, indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. Now, he says it's, it's really, number one, he's going to say a couple of things where her behaviors are leading to. And the first one, he says, it's leading to a sickbed for this spiritual Jezebel. Now, you're going to note that Jesus says he will cast her. He, he's not saying I'm going to cast others who are involved with her in a sickbed. He makes it specific that this is about her. I'm going to cast her, not others, 
into a sickbed. The focus of this consequence is specifically Jezebel and not everyone else in this congregation, although others might indirectly be affected by what he does with her, and and they're going to suffer consequences of judgment as well for their failure to discern and their failure to honor right things that he's given. But, But primarily right now, he's speaking to this Jezebel. And I say that because I've heard people take this and, and miss that, that, that nuance in there. And they've made it about this congregation. Well, this congregation has things that he's going to say to them. But right now, he is addressing her. But what is this, what is this sickbed? Well, first of all, it's a fitting consequence. Let's just start there. It's a fitting consequence. When you consider the things that she's accused of doing here, Jesus earlier told them that she was guilty of leading people into what? Sexual immorality, right? And, and, and implied is both a physical immorality, a, a spiritual adultery, if you will, of sorts. And, and the bed conjures up images of sinful activity like that, right? I mean, it's where she would be doing the work that she's doing. And here Jesus is essentially saying, if it's a bed you want, then, then here's a bed that I'll throw you into as you commit your immoralities. I'll throw you into this. But what is the sick bed? What's the sickbed that he's throwing her into? Well, we don't know for sure, um, but it seems to convey a promise of affliction and suffering of some sort. He's going he's gonna to inflict her with some sort of, 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 of suffering. I don't know about you, but when I think about my bed, I think about comfort and rest. You know, um, I think about that. And then a few months ago, back in November, I had that kidney infection. And I got to tell you, honestly, my bed was not associated with pleasant things. It was not associated with good things because all I remember was laying in agony on the bed, not wanting to be in it because I was too miserable to sleep. And at the same time, I couldn't get out of it. I was stuck there. A bed takes on a whole different association when illness is connected with it. And, and so that's the imagery he's giving to us here in regard to this woman. And we also know from a passage of scripture, like 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30, that God can actually impose physical sickness as a judgment for sin, even on, on those who believe at times. Now, look, I say that very carefully because I don't want you thinking every time you catch a cold or you get the flu or something's going on in your life that this is God's judgment against you. It's, and sometimes people think that way. It's not. But I am saying it can be some ways that he uses to get our attention if we're not walking in his ways if we're walking in disobedience and rebellion against him, and it's designed to bring us back to where we need to be. But think about this in terms of what he's dealing with here in this, this Jezebel and her immoralities. And again, the, the implication is both. It's she's leading them into to real world sexual immorality, and at the same time, she's leading them into spiritual adultery. But, I mean, think about this in terms of, of just the real world kind of sexual immorality that she'd be leading them into. I mean, how very real that reference of, of a sickbed can be to those who've engaged in sexual immorality. You know, ask people who've contracted AIDS, ask people who've contracted STDs as a result of sexual promiscuity if it's, if it's true, because I think the answer would be yes. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that AIDS or, or STDs are necessarily a judgment of God, but these diseases are clearly a consequence that, that he allows as a result of the sinful activities that, that people are committing, that they're engaging in. And, and why else would it be that those who practice healthy biblical sexual relationships in the confines of marriage really are pretty much excluded from these things? You know, because that's the way God designed it. And when we move outside of the way God has designed things, it's always going to reap consequences to our lives. I don't care if it's with this or anything else. You know, it's going to reap consequences to our lives that, that God never intended for us 
to reap, but the choice really isn't his, it's ours, because we've chosen to ignore him. And so, again, when you think about that, the bed that once holds pleasure for people sometimes becomes a bed of affliction for them, just like he's saying to this woman. And that's why I got to tell you, honestly, it, 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 does, it does baffle me a lot. Uh, today, what I'm, I'm witnessing in, in church movements, and not everywhere, but, but there are church themes now where, where it's, there, there's this growing, I don't know what it is, a growing openness of, of Christianity to seek to spiritually justify, you know, all sorts of wrong practices, even sexual practices, you know, um, living outside, you know, living in relationships outside of marriage. It's almost like we're trying to make excuses. Well, the Bible never really lays out marriage the way we think of it today. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, it does. It actually does. You know, God presided over the first marriage in the garden between Adam and Eve. And so it, it just seems like we're trying to justify all these things. And in the process, what we're really doing is we're setting the stage for people to be thrown into sick beds, to, to be thrown into sick beds as a result of the consequences that'll flow from these kinds of things that they'll pursue. Why would we, the church of Jesus Christ, ever want to do that to people? We're, we're here to set people free, not to set them free to incur consequences of wrong things, you see. We're here to set them free in Christ. And I, I thought that we're here to bring healing, not just freedom, but healing to people's lives, not affliction. So I don't get it. I honestly don't get it. But either way, Jesus is simply saying that Jezebel was using a bed for sexual pleasure, but he's going to throw her into a bed of pain and sickness of some sort as a judgment for her sinful behavior if she continues to refuse to repent. But then he goes on and he says this, and those who commit adultery with her integrate tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your work. So he says it's leading not only to the, the sickbed for Jezebel, but it's also leading to great tribulation for those who give themselves over to this spiritual Jezebel's teachings and her ways and, and that death is going to come to her children. And when he makes that reference to her children, what he's talking about are those that she produces, those disciples that she's producing, those children that, that she's spiritually producing with this wrong spirituality and these wrong immoral things and, and that are following her. And he says, man, there, there's nothing but tribulation and death that's coming for this. Literally, tribulation means oppression affliction and distress. Oppression, affliction, and distress. It's a promise of God's judgment that he'll bring to their lives if they refuse to repent. Now, it's interesting to note that, that the term that Jesus uses here for great tribulation, if you like to mark your Bibles, you'll want to mark this one. You know, great tribulation, it appears only two other times in the New Testament. And both of those cases where it appears, it makes reference to the final period in human history when God will be pouring out his judgment upon the earth. Here's some of the references. It's found in Matthew 24 and 21. Matthew 24 and 21. And if you remember that passage, this is where Jesus is, is holding this conversation with his disciples because they said, what will be the signs of your coming in the end of the age? You remember that? And Jesus says this to him. He says, actually beginning in verse 15 of chapter 24 of Matthew, Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand 
that let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or in, on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So here we see that reference, that exact same word. He uses that word, great tribulation, just like he's using here in Revelation. It also appears in Revelation chapter 7, when we get there in verses 13 and 14, and here again, it's a reference to something taking place in the last days. In particular, it's a reference to the end-time martyrs, uh, martyred saints, the saints that are martyred during the tribulation. And here's what it says, uh, Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Again, we see the exact same word he's using, but now he's using it here in this passage, the same terminology. He says that those in this church who are following and giving themselves over to to this woman Jezebel and, and her teachings and her practices and who remain unrepentant, they're going to go through great tribulation. The same term that we've just seen in these other two passages. So how does this apply to this church since the tribulation never happened in their lifetime. It applies to them in a general sense in regard to the sufferings God's promising to to impose upon that congregation who are willfully caught up with this spiritual Jezebel and in her false teachings and her false system of worship and who ultimately refuse his call to repent. These are, are not saved people that he's referring to here. These are, these are really tares among the wheat That's what they are. They're in the church. They're looking like the church. But in reality, they're not the church because they've given themselves over to this woman and said, and where she's going, and they're her children, you see. They're not believers. But at the same time, there are people, you know, as we think about that, there are people like that in churches today, in congregations today. I pray not here. You know, I don't think so here. But, you know, in, in, in the church today, in bodies of Christ, there are people who, who come, they carry their Bibles, they look like Christians, they act like Christians. But in reality, their heart's never been given to the Lord. Now, look, you don't have to start looking over your shoulder because you had a bad week, you know. And I know sometimes we can do that. But it is to say that, you know what? Your salvation is predicated upon one thing, right? Your belief in Jesus Christ. And with that belief, I believe the scriptures pair our surrender to him, that we've given ourselves to him, and that he is our Lord. He is our Savior. Now, that doesn't, I'm not getting into some lordship theology kind of thing here, saying that, you know, you're under some kind of law to do these things. But I am saying that you're giving yourself over to him, that each and every day that passes more and more, you're dying and he's living, you know, in you. I look back from the start of my Christianity some 40 years ago when I was that young private in the army and gave my life to Christ. And yeah, I wasn't a perfect Christian. I'm not a perfect Christian today. But the Lord has changed me over those 40 years from what I once was. And the reason he changed me was because I continued to yield. I continued to give my heart more fully to him in each and every day. You know, I I quit holding out the little closets that I had the keys turned that nobody could get into, not even him. 
But I, I handed him the keys and said, get in here and clean it out. And Lord, convict me. You know, convict me when I sin. See, I'm not bothered by conviction. Some Christians are. They feel like it makes them guilty. And my answer is, oh, well, you know, guilt is not designed to condemn you, but it's designed to motivate you so that you can see there's something wrong here. You know, I got to be honest with you. If I'm doing something wrong in my home in regard to how I'm treating my wife or living in that house, you know, I welcome my wife. I don't like it when she does it, but I welcome her to come and say, this is not right. What you're doing is not right. You must put down the toilet seat. You must learn to do that. It might take me 20 years to learn to do that, but I learned to do that. Now, why do I learn to do that? That's a terrible example, but it is true. No, it's a good example, but it's true. Why did that? Why, why do I learn to do that? Because I don't want to be picked on by her? No. I learned to do it because my heart is I love her. I love her. And, and I want to do right by her. And if that thing, my keeping that toilet seat up is, is upending her nights, and usually it's at night because she'll go in during the night, right? And, and, and if it's upending her world because of that, well, I do feel a sense of guilt over that. I don't feel condemnation, but I feel a sense of guilt because of my love for her, you see. And I welcome that prodding, even though I don't like it at the moment. That's what the Lord does with us. And so I know some Christians really get hung up on it because it immediately takes them to places that that they don't want to necessarily go or they've been through things in their life where people put them under all kinds of expectations and and that's all wrong. You know, people shouldn't do that, nor should the church do that. Jesus doesn't do that. And yet at the same time, his is a corrective rebuke. His is a corrective rebuke because he loves us and because he knows that if we're his, we love him too. And that as he prods us, we're going to change. And he gives us the impetus to change. And there's the difference. My wife can't do that for me. She couldn't say, okay, honey, if you just yield yourself, I'm going to empower you to put down the seed. No, but Jesus does. Jesus says, you know what? Yield to me on this and I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there, but I want your willingness. I want you to willingly give yourself over to this. And as you do that, I'm going to meet you, and I'm going to, through the power of my Holy Spirit working in you, and that willingness of your own heart, the Spirit has the ability now to empower you to do things that you might not learn to do on your own. And I've seen that worked out in my life over 40 years, and he's still working it out in my life every day, each and every day. And I know that one day I'm going to stand before him just like you are, and we will be made complete, and, and the lesson will be over in that regard. You know, and it'll all be done. But in the meantime, he's doing exactly what the scripture's telling us. He's perfecting us for himself. He's perfecting us for himself, you see. But he asks us to yield. And so, you know, there are people, though, within Christianity who just put on the face of Christianity. Maybe it's because their families expected them to. Maybe it's because they're just looking for something to make their life better. Maybe they're a part of things in Christianity because it gives them something to identify with and they find some fulfillment and identity. But in reality, their heart has never been given over to the Lord. Their belief in him is, is not there. Their wheat, you know, tares among the wheat. Now, with that said, you know, we're told in the scripture that it's not our job to go around finding the tares. <laughs> You know, you don't need to start looking behind you and to your left and to your right or, you know, quizzing people in the hallway after service trying to figure out who might be genuine and who might not. 
you know, or out on the street as you meet other Christians. But that's our tendency to do that. You see, that, that's church tendency. And people do that in religion. They're constantly doing it. Most times they do it to prop themselves up, right? So they feel more spiritual. So they feel more Christian. That's not our job. Jesus even tells us it's not our job, right? I mean, he told us that, that we're not to do this. We need to leave them alone. We need to let it alone. And what he says is that eventually he's going to send out what's necessary to uproot those things. Because the problem is you and I might start uprooting people who are really in him, but just have not grown yet. They really haven't grown yet. And then we begin to uproot their lives through the, the judgments that we pass on them. It's not our place to do that. You see, leave them alone. He knows who they are. He knows who they are and he'll reveal their true nature. He'll eventually do that. And he will ultimately hold them accountable. And I believe that's exactly what he's doing here in Thyatira. He's going to talk to a group of people that he knows are believers. But he's also talking to a group that he says, you're in the midst of this and you're the children of this woman. You're the children of this woman. You're not of me. And because of that, here's what's going to happen if you don't repent. If you don't turn your heart towards me instead. You see, now with that said, there's an application that goes beyond this application for the historic church that Jesus is speaking to, an application for the church that I believe still exists today. You see, we're going to find that with this church, Thyatira, that the next three churches that Jesus will write to, Sardis, Laodicea, and Philadelphia, Jesus will make references and statements that will seem to indicate that these churches in particular are still alive and well today and flecked, in some cases, even beginning to flourish in the world in which we live today. You'll see that when we get to Laodicea in particular. But remember, each of these churches, we talked about this before, they, they represent a, a period of church history, I believe. The church of Ephesus, when we were dealing with Ephesus, it represented the period of church history from about 33 to 100 AD. It represented the church in all its initial stages of development in the first century. And then we came to the church of Smyrna and it represented church history from about 100 to about 312 AD. It was the period where the church underwent intense persecution. And then the church of Pergamos, which we looked at last, it represented church history from about 313 to 600 AD. And this was the period of church history when Rome recognized Christianity as the religion of the empire and the church. There was this unholy merging that began. It just began during this time. But there was this merging where the church joined herself with the political system of Rome and a corrupting process began within the church. And it was during this period of church history that many of the ecclesiastical elements of, uh, of the formal church came into existence to include the early development of, of, of a professional clergy. I hate that word, clergy, you know, clergy and, and a priesthood, you know, I hate that word. I do, you know, I, the hospitals always want you to put that on your bumper sticker. I'm like, uh-uh, I'm putting clergy on the back of there. I'm, I'm just a fisherman for Jesus. You know, I'm a fisherman, a servant. That's what I am. You know, and I want to come in and minister to people, but I'm not clergy. But a lot of the elements of this church and the church has mentioned before, they're still with us. They're still here uh, to some degree today. But but here, beginning with the church of Thyatira, we find a shift. There's a distinct shift taking place, a shift that we're also going to see in those 
remaining three churches. It's a shift in Jesus' wording that seems to indicate that the church system represented in these final four churches is, for the most part, still here. And based on the language being used, the indication seems to be that Thyatira-like churches will actually be functioning in the world when the final act of world history gets played out, when judgment finally comes. And in that regard, most believe that Thyatira actually represents church history from about 600 to 1500 A.D., one of the darkest periods of church history. This was the period marked by the formation of a church that, though its early development began in the period represented by the church of Pergamos, uh, when Rome joined herself with the church, it came into full bloom and blossom and became a force in the world during this period of time in church history. And like the woman in Thyatira, this church took spiritual authority to herself that she had no right to take. This was a church that set herself up as the world church with a world spokesman for religious matters, Christian matters, making itself the sole representation of, of, of authority for the Christian faith, taking spiritual authority to be the prophet or spokesman for God. It was a church that amassed great amounts of wealth through political means, amassing vast quantities of treasure of both money and, and land, wealth that corrupted and over time caused this church to join herself spiritually with things that really didn't represent Christ, idolatrous things. It was a church that led her people into spiritual adultery as she sought to combine Christianity with paganistic rituals and icons and many other false worship practices common to the pagan religions of that and over the years and, and legitimizing these false and, and, and idolatrous things in the name of Christ. And like the historic Jezebel, it was a church that didn't take kindly to any challenge to her authority. In fact, she persecuted and killed those who refused to yield to her. It was during that period of church history that the Inquisition took place under the directives of this church. Thyatira clearly represents the period of church history during which the Catholic Church emerged. And as Jesus makes reference to a promise of tribulation to this woman and her followers in a practical sense, prophetically, he's also talking about those who give themselves over to the false teachings of this church will also find themselves entering into and facing God's judgment as represented by the great tribulation. Now, I want to make a very important comment to you guys, and I want you to listen to me very carefully here. Let me be clear on this. I am not saying in any way saying, I am not in any way implying that a person will face God's judgment because he or she is a Catholic. I am not saying this, and I do not believe that Jesus is saying this. What I am saying, and what I believe Jesus is saying, is that those who give themselves over to the false and blasphemous teachings of this church system, or any other church system that does not represent him, will face those consequences. Because those who do so do not really know him, you see. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.